Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you guys. Good to see you online as well who are joining us there. Um, guests, first time here, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. There is coffee over here. If you need coffee, please feel free to go grab it during service. I won't throw cast stones or anything from you up here from the pulpit. Not too, I don't got that good of an arm. So don't worry about it. But we are glad you are here. Uh, let you guys know, we, we are between series right now. We just finished a series called Jonah. Uh, talking about Jonah and the big fish. Uh, if you pay attention to the sermon series, you can go back and listen to that sort of stuff. And, and the next week, we're starting a series on thanks and giving, uh, talking about stewardship. Now, before you get in your minds like, oh, that's all preachers want to talk about money. Listen, I do it every time of year around November. That's my theme is talking about stewardship. So there will be a four-week series starting up next week on uh, stewardship and stuff, which I'm excited to also announce uh, starting the next year, starting in January, we're looking at having a uh, Dave Ramsey class on Wednesday night starting up for any of you that might be interested in going to Financial Peace University class. Uh, we're working on those details right now. So excited about that. Just kind of store that in the back of the brain. So today we have a standalone series, and you can open your Bibles. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6 and Matthew 3 will be two kind of our key places we'll come to today. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can get there. But as I was working on this sermon, I actually got the idea from doing a wedding just a couple of weeks ago, and I began to think through a wedding. It's interesting, some of the, the traditions, some of the, the things that we do at ceremonies, isn't it? I began to think about a wedding and all the things that go in. It's like, why, why do we do this? Like, why, why do you have the bride and groom side just sitting on separate sides of the aisles? Why do you have their, their peeps and then their peeps over here at the front of the aisle and stuff like that? Why do they walk up? Why do they do all these sort of things? I begin to think about other things we do that are odd. Like, for example, have you ever thought about this? Uh, why, why at graduation do we wear a square flat hat on our head and then say you're a smart, educated person? Why do they do that? That makes no sense. It's, this flat thing on your head, or, or, or why uh, at birthdays do we decide to light them on fire and tell our kids to blow it out? Like, what, where did that come from? Where did this idea come from? Or, or my personal favorite, I'm a basketball player fan and stuff, why in NBA draft do they give the NBA players a baseball hat to wear to show what team? They're, they're never going to wear a baseball hat like that again. It makes no sense. Why do we do these things? Have you ever, you ever thought about that before? I'm alone. Okay, good. This is a great sermon today. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done that. Where you have ceremonies, you're like, why do we do this? And so I want to do this just to kind of kick off today. Would you just, with the people around you, maybe behind you, in front of you, meet someone new at this time, whatever, would you just share, what do you think is the most peculiar cultural ceremony we do, would you say, in your mind, as you can think of, like things that we do, like, I mean, this is kind of weird, why do we do this? So take a second with the people around you, don't look at me, look at someone around you, and, and take a second and talk about that. What, what do you think is the most peculiar ceremony, cultural ceremony that you, we do, would you say? Take a second, discuss that. Some of you right now are like, I've never thought about that. Why do we put up a Christmas tree and shovel, a dead Christmas tree and shove lights in it and call it Christmas? Like, why, why do we do this sort of things?
I'm not going to lie, I feel like I'm kind of alone up here. Does anybody ever sit and think about these things? Is anybody else bothered by why do we have these cultural things we do and we just carry it on like this is normal? I mean, I began to, I actually went and researched, like, why, why, like, one just drove me crazy is the graduation square hat. Why do you wear this absurd flat hat on your head? I mean, what, what is the point of it with this weird tassel? And it's funny, there's a lot of different theories and what, what the reason is. One thing I found, they said similar hats and robes as you've seen wearing by graduate stuff uh, were worn by the academic community back in the 12th and 13th century. That was often what they wear. They wear the robe to keep warm, and their hat was not exactly like that, but sim- similar to that. And over time, those became symbols of recognition and achievement. And so to show that you had arrived and you had become an academia person, that that's what you would start wearing. And so it had just culturally gotten passed down. Or blowing out candles at a birthday. Uh, There's some that believe that ancient Greeks used to do this. They'd put candles on a cake as a way to pay tribute to the Greek moon goddess Artemis. You didn't know you were worshiping other gods by blowing out candles, did you? Shame on you all. Don't ever do it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, or, or maybe it's this. Some people say that in the 1700s, Germans started celebrating with a single birthday candle and placed it on a cake to symbolize the lighting of life. But they wouldn't blow it out. You just wait till it burned down and eat the cake, wax and all. Uh, sign me up for that one right there. Um, we're like, blow it out as quick as you can. Don't ruin the cake, right? You know what I'm talking about? Wedding ceremonies, I love symbolism. You have the two separate people. They come down, they have their party, their party separate. But then you have this beautiful picture that ties back to Christ where they leave now as one family when they walk out and it's a union coming on. It's interesting talking through some of this stuff because we, we have our own symbolism in the church that often is confusing. And the one we're going to talk about today is, is baptism, actually. Like, like, what is it? Why do we do it? Like, is it really necessary? i never forget my first church I served at. We were building a new church building, and we were meeting in an old paint storage building uh, for, for our church for the longest time. And we used to do baptisms. We'd do it at a pool, or in those winter times, we'd do it at someone's hot tub. And I'll never forget, they're building it, and these kids who'd never grown up in the church, they had a, ba- a baptismal in the back, and the kids walked into this just, just real rough structured sanctuary. And when the kids walks in, it comes out, guys, you won't believe it. Like, the church has a jacuzzi in the front stage. Like, they were all excited. We had to talk to them, like, no, it's a baptismal. And they said, why do you take baths in front of people? I'm like, that's a good question. It is weird. Why, why do we do it? And so today I want to explore it. Maybe you're a Christian your whole life and you've known these things. It's important to be reminded of the significance and why this is such a big deal. Because we're going to answer that, what is it? Where, where did it originate? Is it really necessary? And the principle that I want you to unpack that we're going to see today when it comes to baptism is ultimately this. It's going, all these points I'm going to make are point back to this one thing is this. is that we get baptized because it's God's will. Plain and simple. You may say, well, that sounds confusing, but no, just understand this. We get baptized because it's God's will. And so let's start with these things. We're going to talk about what it is, why do we do it, and is it necessary? So start with what is it? And I want to talk just practically speaking and then symbolically speaking. What is baptism? Why why do we uphold this? Why do we do this at the church? Now, if you've never grown up in church, you don't know what baptism is, practically speaking. I think the best thing is to show a video of a kid getting baptized. So I want you to check this out real quick.
I wish we had that kind of excitement right there. Just do it already. That is, that is what a baptism looks like right there. Generally, you're kind of dunked by someone. Don't do it yourself. But hey, it's all the same. There's things he said I love there. It's, it's to demonstrate your faith. You're willingly doing this on your own. And so you see an actual picture. This is what baptism is. But practically speaking, it, it as well, it's a full immersion of the body when you get dunked underwater. The original Greek, the word baptism comes from the Greek word baptismo. It literally means to be fully immersed underwater. And as a church, as a Baptist church, that's one of the things we uphold and we stand by. And we say we believe baptism should be by full immersion. Now you have in the culture world where other denominations have said, well, we sprinkle. And I'll, I'll tell you here in a little while why that's just not a great picture of what it's supposed to be and will come to what it is. And so practically speaking, that's what baptism is, but, but symbolically speaking, it's something much more profound, and this is what the significance of baptism comes in. But like symbolically speaking, it's a picture or, or a reenactment of Jesus' death and resurrection it is what you see going on. It's a symbolic living gesture that tells a story. When we do it over and over, it, it reenacts the story of what Jesus has done, of how he, he died and was crucified on the cross and he was buried. And three days later, he comes back and rose from the dead to show his conquering over death and that salvation can come to himself and to you also if you just believe. It's this beautiful picture. It's the same thing. We have other things culturally going on. I remember in fifth grade when we were studying about Thanksgiving, like where this all came from. And you go back to the roots of Thanksgiving, a call comes back whenever settlers came here to the United States and they're, they're trying to survive in this, this new territory and they don't know how to farm it and live it. And luckily Native Americans came and taught them how to cultivate the land and live off the land and their first harvest, their first harvest production they had, they went and they celebrated by sitting down and having this giant meal together, a sign of just thanks for allowing us to survive in friendship and community. And every year, we get together and we sit and we do that and watch football. That, that wasn't part of it. But nonetheless, we sit and we, we do the same thing. We reenact this, this imagery of what took place. You see, it's a symbolic living gesture. And you say, what story? Well, you have your Bibles there, Romans 6. We'll real quickly read what Paul says. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 3. He tells us a story that we're reenacting, what, what baptism does. Starting in verse 3, it says, Or have you forgotten? That when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death as well. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new life. Since we have been united with him in his death, we also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And we are no longer slaves to sin. You have this imagery of showing that this is what Christ did. Christ was, took all the sin, all the shame that was before on him, and he was buried. And when he came and he rose, proving that he was God, proving he was who he said he was, he came in this new life, this new creation. And if you place your faith in him, you have this same sort of thing happen to you, that you cast all of your old sins on Christ, and he takes your punishment for you. And when you're baptized and brought up, you're resurrected in this new life, this new way of living. It's a symbolic gesture that points to it. And so you see these sort of things, and you see this literal death and resurrection take place. This is why, and we don't pick on them or anything, but this is why sprinkling just doesn't work. It just doesn't paint the picture. It doesn't tell the story of what actually took place. You miss the gesture a little bit. It just doesn't tell it properly. And so symbolically, it's a reenactment, but it's also an outward expression of an inward reality. Meaning this, baptism doesn't save you. It's a symbol of our salvation. I'll always go back to a wedding ring. 
And I always talk to youth when I sit and talk about baptism. If I gave you my wedding ring, would you suddenly be married to Emily? They'd say, oh, no, that's weird, dude, gross. I'm like, thank you, whatever that means and stuff. But the point is this, it doesn't make you married. Having a ring doesn't do it. It simply symbolically says to someone that I'm committed, I belong to someone, I'm proud to show it. But some people think that, well, I have to get baptized to get saved, and it's just not true. It's not this. It's not what it is. It reminds me of an old joke of a man who was walking down the river one day, and this church was outside performing baptisms. And this man was alcoholic, and he was drinking, and you could smell his breath, and he walked up, and the preacher saw him and said, Sir, have you found Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He said, No. He said, Would you like to find him? He says, Yes. And he says, Come here. And he grabs him, and he baptizes him, and the man goes down and comes back up, and he says, Have you found Jesus? And he said, No. He says, Well, Sir, he goes, let me help you. And he's baptizing him again, and he holds him other, brings him up and says, now, brother, have you found Jesus? He said, no, I haven't found him, preacher. So the preacher just frustrated and just finally puts him under and holds him there a little bit longer. Maybe it just needs to sink in for about 30 seconds. And he's frustrated, and he brings him back and says, brother, please tell me that you found Jesus. He said, no, nah, preacher, are you sure this is where you left him? Hopefully that'll sink in later for some of you. The point is this, baptism isn't where we find Jesus. It's what you do once you found him. It's what you do once you found him. You see, baptism doesn't save us. It's a symbol, it's a testimony of our salvation. How, how do I know this? Scripture talks about it. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 10 says this, If we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Because we believe in our hearts, and so we are made right with God, and we declare with our mouths so that we believe, and so we are saved. There's no addition to it. There's no baptism has to happen for you to be saved. As a matter of fact, you see the example of it in Luke chapter 23, verse 42 through 46, when Jesus is sitting on the cross, literally sitting at his end. And he says he's sitting there to his right and left are two thieves, and one of the thieves sitting on the cross, that's being hanged on the cross, says this. He said to Jesus, said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, listen, what I say to you today, today you will be with me in paradise. This man never gets baptized, and yet he still gets saved. Like, like understand this, like, it, it's evidence of our salvation. It's not the means to salvation. Let, let, me, let me paint it a different way. Let me say it like this to break it down. You can be saved without being baptized. Hear that clearly. You can be saved without being baptized. You can't be baptized without being saved. Otherwise, it's just a public bath, and it's kind of awkward, okay? You can't do it. But here's the most important thing. You will get baptized if you're saved. Let me say it again. You will get baptized if you're saved. And you say, why? Why would I do that? Because I go back to my main idea is this, because we get baptized because it's God's will. And so we have to go back, well, why, why do we do it? To understand the principle, understand the significance, you've got to go back to the roots of where did baptism start from? Where did it come from? What, what's the meaning behind it? Like, where did this symbol picture come from? You look in the Old Testament, and it actually even happens in the Old Testament. You have this ritual cleansing that takes place in Leviticus that talks about these sort of things. That to way to be cleansed from, ritually clean for church, you would go and be baptized and go through these different ceremonies to have. Ritual washing was a way to get cleansed from sin in the Old Testament, they thought. Even for new converts, if you were a Gentile that wanted to adopt the faith of Judaism and kind of become part of the Jewish faith, what they call a, a God-fear or a proselyte, uh, if you want to do this sort of thing, you'd have to go through a three-step process. 
Your first is you would have to come and offer a sacrifice for your sins. And they'd offer like a heifer or a pair of turtle doves and stuff like that as, as prescribed in the Old Testament. Once you've done that, then you would go the next step, which would be circumcision, which a young man or adult would do. Now listen, for a little kid, baby Jewish boy who got circumcised at eight years old, they don't remember that soon after. As a grown man, that's something you're going to remember for the rest of your life and not something you do entirely lightly. This was not something you just haphazard like, I think I'm going to do this today. It's something that took an actual act of commitment. And once you follow that, the last step of a proselyte to come and join the Jewish faith, to actually adopt this faith as they do this, after they were circumcised and had been healed, they would go for the final step of baptism. And they'd literally take you and they'd strip you naked and you would baptize this way to show that you were completely taking away all of your old self and taking on this new self inside this way of life. And from that point forward, that person had fully renounced his previous life, his previous nationality, his previous allegiances. In every sense of the word, he was saved and part of the Jewish faith from that point on. And so in the Old Testament, you see this picture going on. And so when you pick up your Bibles, and hopefully you're still with me in Matthew chapter 3, where Jesus comes along, and there's a guy named John, John the what? Baptist, right? Yeah, he started the Baptist church. No, he didn't start the Baptist church. There's a whole different history there. But a guy named John the Baptist gets his name because this is what he does. He baptizes people as this way to say, hey, listen, if you really want to follow the Lord and you really want to do this, like, come show your faith, start living it out. And Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 3, and let's read verse 13 through 17, where Jesus started this thing of the Christian faith. It says, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. He said, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. He said, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, and don't miss this, this is a profound statement. He said, it should be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. And after his baptism, as Jesus came out of the water, heavens were opened and saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said this, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. Jesus is the one who instills baptism in the Christian faith. He's the one who first inaugurated this new way of doing it and this new symbolism with it. And so the question you have to ask is, well, why, why did Jesus do it? Why, why is Jesus? Like, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't sin. He doesn't need to do this. Why does Jesus get baptized? You see the first part right there in verse 14, 15, it says it should be done. We must care all that God requires. It was an act of obedience for Jesus to come do this. It's about him submitting to God's will that I'm going to fulfill what God wants to do. Think about that. Even the Son of God comes and says, I have to be obedient to the Father's will and do what he wants me to do. If Jesus says, you know, I'm above this, I don't have to do this, so how would that be for his followers? But for Jesus to set the tone and say, this is what obedience looks like in my life, and if, you, if I'm going to do it, what makes you think you're above me to do it? It's the same thing when he told his, servant, his, his disciples one day, he says, if you really want to love someone, you want to show service to them, wash their feet. Like, if I'm willing to do it, you should be willing to do the same thing. And so it's an act of obedience. It was also an act of humility. Think of this. This is the Son of God who stepped down from his throne to take on this very light and do this sort of things. Like, I mean, just phrase it a different way. Have you ever been put in a position to do something that you felt was beneath you? You ever been in a situation like, like, I really have to do that? Do you not know who I am? Like, I'm not trying to stir up uh, ties to schools or anything like that, but right now you have a situation with OU football where you have a quarterback that got replaced by another quarterback and feels like, oh, this is beneath me to be a, a backup quarterback. i got to go do all this sort of stuff. Is this really, do I really have to do this sort of stuff? Think about what Jesus would have to do. But yeah, I love Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, paints a picture of who Jesus is. 
It says Christ himself was like God in everything. Understand this, it says he was equal with God. But he did not think that being equal with God was something to be held on to. And so he gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born as a man and became like a servant. And when he was a living man, he humbled himself and was fully obedient to, de- to God. He obeyed even when that caused his death, death on a cross. You see, it was an act of humility that Jesus followed through. It was an act of obedience. It was an act of humility. It was an act of commitment. Commitment to God's plan, to, as it says, to carry out all things God requires. Don't miss the subtle tones. What is he talking about? Jesus' future is death on a cross. Is saying, listen, I will do whatever you want. You think Jesus wanted to do that? He was in the garden, Gethsemane, crowned a guy like, God, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass. I really don't want to do this. But there's an act of saying, you know what? I'm going to submit to your will even when it's not what I want. And Jesus was setting the perfect example. He shows obedience. He shows humility. He shows commitment. Like, think about this. How much do we struggle with commitment in our world today? One of the hardest things I ever was doing as a student minister is to get someone to commit to being a leader. They say, I'll be there every single week. I'll do everything, everything you need, but don't call me a leader. Don't make me commit to anything long term. You see in our world with young adults nowadays that don't want to get married and just want to live and enjoy all the fruits of being married, but don't want the commitment of a ring and of a wedding to say, listen, I belong to someone. We, we struggle with commitment of saying, I, I will be there thick and thin. I'll do whatever you want. Jesus shows the tone, listen, you can't come to Christ and say, I'm halfway in, or you can count on me, but don't make me commit to anything. It's all or nothing. The last thing you see with Jesus I love is that it was an act of identification. I love what Colossians 2, listen to what Colossians 2, verse 11 through 12. It says, in Christ, you had a different kind of circumcision. It says, that circumcision was not done by hands. I mean, you were made free from the power of your sinful self. That is the kind of circumcision Christ does. You see, when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ, and you were raised up with Christ because your faith in God's power. That power has shown that he raised Christ from the dead. It identifies you with Christ. I love when Jesus comes out of the water, what does God say? This is my son who I'm happy with. I'm well pleased. It identifies us with him. Can you imagine us coming and saying, I want this, but I really don't want to be known, identified, everyone to know that I belong to you. It makes me think of my best friend growing up who dated a girl that he liked dating her. He liked holding her hands and doing stuff that dating couples did, but he was kind of embarrassed over her. He didn't want all his friends to know who he was dating. How do you think she felt when she found out that he was refusing to tell people that this was his girlfriend and what was going on? Man, it was not a good deal. He deserved to get slapped, and I encouraged it. It's a thing like this. Like, we can't come to Christ and say, you know what, I want the benefits of being a follower of God, but I don't want to be identified as a follower of God. Let me just say this. If you can't publicly identify with God at church, what makes you think you're going to do it in the real world? If you can't come and do this because you're scared of, man, what, man, I'm embarrassed, I'm nervous, what makes you think you're going to stand for your faith out in the real world when people really begin to ask, people who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? This is one small act of obedience starting right here is a key that sets off so many other things, and yet so many people are scared of doing it. It's amazing how many people I talk to says, you know, I got saved, but I never followed it in baptism. Luke 9, Jesus tells us this in Luke chapter 9, verse 26. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me, this is Jesus speaking, if anyone is ashamed of me and my teaching, then I'll be ashamed of him. I'll be ashamed of him at the time when I come in my glory with the glory of the Father and the holy angels. In other words, if you don't want to identify and and tell people that I belong to Christ, guess what? I'm not going to stand before the Father and say, this person belongs to me. It's a witness for God and for you. 
And so when people come and say, well, I just want to get baptized in private. Can I just do it at home? Can we just have my close family? You're missing the whole purpose of what it is. It's to tell everyone. It's to tell a story about what Jesus has done. It's to present the gospel in a picture form and in your own life. And I know it's intimidating to get in front of people. And people see, man, what if they, I mean, I'm scared to get in front of people. I get it. But with what Christ has done for you, is it not worth it? So you might say, like, why should I do it? Well, it's the same thing I'm just saying. It's about obedience. It's about humility. It's about commitment. It's about identification. We get baptized because it's God's will. Jesus told in one of his very last things he said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. He says, go and make followers of all nations of the world. And he says this, baptize them. Baptize them in the fire of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've told you. I think it's interesting that he says teach and obey comes after baptism. Why? Because baptism is the first act of obedience as a believer to say, listen, I belong to Christ and I will do whatever he says. But we always come to God sometimes and say, I'll do all but that. And if we can't start with the first step, we're going to struggle the rest of the way. And so it comes to the point that you say, well, a lot of people ask me, is it necessary? Do I really have to do this? Do I really have to be baptized? Is that really a big deal? And I'll say this, no, and yes, all at the same time. Well, I'll tell you, like, I've studied, I've looked, nowhere scripturally can I find support for baptism for salvation, that you have to do it. There's nowhere. As a matter of fact, it disconnects more and more that it's not about what we do, and if we have to do something to do it, suddenly our grace is being earned by merit or something we do. You don't have to do it. But there's tons of evidence all throughout the Bible that shows that this is what saved people do when they meet the Lord. There's all sorts of evidence all over the place. As a matter of fact, obedience to God's will is a mark of his children. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus said this, Not everyone who says, you are my Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The only people who will enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do the things my Father in heaven wants. It's about obedience. We get baptized because it's God's will. That's why it's such a big deal here. Because one thing for someone to get saved, and listen, we want that life transformation to happen, but we know transformation will really start to bear fruit when they take that first act of obedience. And this is the hardest thing for people to do. Some because we think it's absurd. It sounds silly. Like, why do I have to come take this bath in the jacuzzi tub? And Like, that's weird. That makes no sense. Can I do it some other way? God says he wants it that way. And there's things in your life that God's going to ask that may sound absurd or not make sense to you, but at the end of the day, will you faithfully follow what he's asked? Make, make me so mistake. It was absurd when they walked around the walls of Jericho seven times and had to blow their trumpets. But you know what? God said do it. And guess what? God delivered and did exactly what he said. There's an act of obedience that comes with the Christian walk. It's not about success. It's about obedience in life. Let, let me just say this. Like, when it comes to it, a lot of us want Jesus, but we don't want the relationship. We want the benefits of God. And we misunderstand and misinterpret the importance of obedience in the life of a Christian. My old pastor used to say this, I love it. You can't say no and Lord in the same sentence. If he's the Lord of your life, your answer always has to be yes. If God's the God of your life, you have to say yes. Saying no and Lord is like an oxymoron. You know what I'm talking about? It's like saying jumbo shrimp. Or icy hot, right? Or definitely maybe. Think two things that completely contradictory. It just don't make sense. To say no, Lord, makes no sense at all because you can't be the Lord of your life if you're willing to come and say, no, I won't do that. And, and so for some of you in this room right here, you've done everything but that because you're scared, you're intimidated. I, hey, I get it. 
But I promise you, I know this, God will give you the strength to get up and do it. God will give you the encouragement. And your witness goes way farther than you realize. Some of you just need this reminder that, you know what, it started there and my obedience shouldn't stop now. When God asked me these little things, like it started way back when I got baptized. When we get kids baptized and adults baptized, there should be a celebration. Why? Because we understand not only have they accepted the Lord, but they're wanting to faithfully follow the Lord wherever he wants them to go. And there should be a celebration rather than the golf clap, oh, yay, we did this. There's something life transformational happens. And so we as a church will continue to fight for, pursue, and push this awkward thing called baptism where we put people in front of us and do this. Why? Because God wants us to do it. And if God wants us to do it, we'll faithfully do it. And, and so here, here's my challenge for you guys as we wrap up. I'm just going to ask you this, where you're at. Just take a second. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I'm just going to ask you to do this. Where has your obedience stopped with the Lord? Some of you, I, I know for a fact in this room, have not followed through with baptism, and you, you need to do that. I'm not telling you you won't go to heaven. I'm not telling you you're not saved. But I'm telling you, a mark of a believer I see all through Scripture is this act of obedience and baptism. You see it over and over and over again. You need to be faithful to that. And, and the church in here, I'm going to tell you right now, is excited for you to do that. Some of you in the sound of my voice right now, you've been baptized, you've done that, but here's the thing you're struggling with. You, you've struggled with being obedient in other things in your aspects of your life. Obedience with the little things. And it's time you say, Lord, listen, I need to go back to that same time of faith that got me in front of people doing that. Some of you, for the first time, are hearing the gospel message. That Jesus Christ loved you so much, that God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sins. He faced humility. He faced anguish. He faced punishment. He faced everything. And it's all the sins he took upon himself for you and me. Every wrong act that you ever have done, will do, or continue to do. Listen, Christ died on the cross for that right there. And if you simply come and place your faith and say, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, and I want this salvation, you will be saved. Today is your first day. You need to come up and make that public. By just talking to one of our elders over here in the, I think Pete and myself will be right over here in the front. We'd love nothing more to walk you through that. My challenge, my plea is today you would come and say, yes, Lord, not no. Yes. So as I pray, if you feel a need to get up and be obedient, like people are scared to walk an aisle nowadays. I don't, I don't get it. Maybe we're just too intimidated what people think. Listen, I'm going to encourage you to be bold today. But I'm going to pray for you and pray that you respond with whatever you feel like you need to do. Whether it be to come and put your faith in Jesus Christ, whether it come and be obedient in baptism, or just some area of your life that I need to start being obedient in. I'm going to pray that you do that. So Father God, I pray for the people in this room. Those who need to get up and be faithful to what they need to be faithful to right now, God, I pray they do that. God, I pray we would not underestimate the importance of obedience in our life and the calling you have for us. God, we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by what you've done. But what you've done should forever change us and march for life that we're never the same again. And God, I pray we would follow that. God, I pray they'd say yes, Lord, right now to you. God, thank you so much for your sacrifice. Thank you so much for your example. God, I pray we as a church would start just celebrating this, this concept, this idea, this importance of baptism is this foundational to the church. 
I pray we see others come to Christ, God. I pray we would be hungry for people to come to salvation and, and obedience after salvation, God. God, I just want to see an awakening start at this church and this community. Use us for that. God, I love you for who you are. I love you for your grace. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we sing and you stand, if you need to come up, myself and Pete will be right over here. I encourage you to come. But you stand. Let's sing.